join me in a little time travel this morning. Heading off to Cedar Point on a crisp October Saturday morning, my dog and I hurried past the stream gurgling over its gravel. But her insistent body turned me around. A black kitten hunted shivering in the wet leaves at the edge of the book. I unbuttoned my flannel shirt and slid in the next to one skin, where he purred against me for the last than ten minutes it took to reverse back into the kitchen. He's so tiny, Dan said, so keep him warm against your body. Irma, how about making him some thinned-down baby cereal? I'll get a box and land it. The kitten was ravenous, but his shaking made eating chaotic. Dad suggested I put my hand against the back of his head to steady him, and it helped. Pushing back against my fingers, he ate everything he wasn't already wearing, but still shivered. Mother ready to a tray. I held him steady between my hands. Success. We all wrongly assumed that with input and output functioning, he wasn't too badly off. But later that day, Dad said, you know, he needs to see Dr. Belcher or someone. Yes, I did. Our vet recommended a trip to Boston's Angel Memorial Hospital, where they were certain he was very damaged. My 11-year-old self worried. They said he should be put down, and mother would agree. But the vet's proposition saved the kitten's life. Just leave him with us, he suggested. We'd like to study. Mother's posture straightened. No, she said. We'll just take him home. The doctor glared. You're not doing him any favors. And hostility hung in the air as we departed. The doctor hadn't meant to go, Mother. He couldn't have known she'd responded so formidably. Or understand. We already respected the spicy cat. Different, yes, but seemingly positive he found himself a home. The next few days established a routine. Three times a day, the black kitten made staggering laps around the double bed, claws grasping at the bedspread to hang on, then ate and used the litter box with help. Otherwise, this crate was the extent of his world. We had no expectations, no thoughts of miracles. He was actively content. Enough. <clears throat> Hadn't what he suffered restored the right to a chance? His tremors persisted. Dad said, golly, Wobbles. <clears throat> My brother said, that should be his name. Mother said, no, Mr. Wobbles, his grip deserves acknowledgement. What we were unprepared for his progress. In no time, he held his head steady. One surprising day, he wasn't walking. A new reality, and we missed his precise arrival. My parents never shared thoughts about what was unfolding among us. We simply now had three cats instead of two. I thought then, still do, that the black cat was a gift for each of us. His every movement calculated and intentional, but each one seemingly bringing him joy. As he strengthened, his posture changed. He flexed his claws into the fabric of the bedstead firmly, 
Studying him became unnecessary. Somehow, <clears throat> imagining cat braces, he locked his knees and focused intently, falling only when distracted. That happened less frequently every day, a purr of rocking every conquest. He ate as a giraffe does, legs spread apart, head angled straight down and rigid. Early on, we covered him, but as he became muscular, he no longer relaxed against us, and we settled for stroking, communicating by sharing praise, encouragement, and affection. Next, we moved downstairs. We couldn't quite decide when Mr. Bob Hubbles' tail had changed. Gradually, it had become muscular, losing its ability to flex for a new adaptive function, becoming a rigid fifth appendage, a furred runner that counterbalanced his feet. To walk, he levered himself up on stiffened legs, shifted his weight to one side, let his tail sway until it crossed the center of gravity, steadied himself, picked up his opposing paws, moved them forward, focused, let his tail sway back the other way, shifted his weight to the other side, picked up his legs, moved them forward, and repeated. It was mesmerizing to watch him sway along black pendulum measuring progress like an inverted metronome. The crate was forever retired, the living room couch became his domain, and all uncontrolled movements disappeared as winter passed into late spring. The time came to scrub and turn off the widescreen porch that ran the width of the house. We spent many happy hours out there, and the effort the project required to set up was amply rewarded by the seasonal extra room. We'd finished and were taking a well-deserved break when Mother pointed and whispered, Shh, look, he's come to find us. Enter Mr. Wobbles. Swaying gently through the living room doorway to his own waltz, navigating the foyer judiciously, joining his family. He reached up a paw, grabbed the fabric of the chaise lounge, hauled himself slowly onto it, sniffed the air, approved, and stayed his claim. That spot was his for 15 summers. After his coming out, there was no stopping. He went everywhere, upstairs and down, eating with the other cats, sharing in their walks. One day, with Mr. Wobbles halfway across the kitchen, my brother inadvertently broke the cat's concentration as he thundered down from upstairs in a hurry to meet friends. Terrorized by a noise he couldn't process, Wobbles lurched against the cabinets and careened sideways, his brain unable to function at the speed his fear demanded for escape. We all felt so badly the episode prompted a house rule no one ever disregarded. Don't move fast. Another time, when my brother's friend Jack came through the back door and stared mouth agape as wobbles swayed along his route, Chuck said, just stay put a minute, he can't hurry. Jack was horrified and said to us, he's ghoulish. Why do you keep him? 
Chuck Offen. No, I'll meet him. He's cool. But the young man declined, and they left quickly. Three years younger, I tried to see our black cat through Jack's eyes unsuccessfully. During Mr. Lovell's lifespan, I considered the difference he had made to our family more than once. But it wasn't until I came across a quote from a teenage student at Perkins School for the Blind that I acquired the words to clarify my feelings of gratitude. She said, I finally realized my life is about what I can do, not about Thank you, Syl, for your memory. Now, you might be wondering what lessons worthy of a sermon might follow Syl's story of Mr. Wobbles. Several possibilities might occur to you. The role of the indomitable spirit, the importance of love and support in our lives, maybe even our first UU principle, the inherent worth and dignity of all life. It made us think about differences and how grateful we are for them. When I was about 10, my brother and I were invited to eat supper next door while my parents were out. Our neighbors were Yankee, who thought that SpaghettiOs would make an appropriate supper for we two Italian-American children. <laughs> when our parents returned, we reported being embarrassed as to what was the polite way to respond to being served SpaghettiOs. So awful, so different from the homemade pasta and sauce we got at home. My mother said new food was always interesting to her, and we could always say interesting, but to make sure we said it with a smile. How could we enjoy or smile at something so different? Alex Capitan from our Transforming Hearts program reminds us, we have been taught to be uncomfortable with differences. An aversion to new food may not be important, but the description of difference as ghoulish as Jack expressed it in Sill's story, is important. His attitude demonstrates our struggles with difference, doesn't it? How grateful I am that so young, I was always encouraged to view difference as something positive, something interesting, rather than something often met with fear, anxiety, or distaste. Look around our world, our neighborhood, our congregation, we're not all alike. We live in a world of difference, age, race, gender variance, socioeconomic status, and on and on. We have been gifted by differences of many kinds. Perhaps influenced by my mother's teachings, I have always been drawn to differences. Syl and I, as educators, have worked with many differently able children over the years. We have come to realize that our special children and later, the many adults we have known with a variety of labels have enriched our lives profoundly. In high school, I volunteered with the Mass Association for Retarded Children. I held a college co-op job as a psychiatric aide. I was a grad student hospital social worker and spent my professional career teaching in both preschools and colleges. My friend Helen and I began a traditional preschool over 50 years ago. Most of our students were normal. However, because of my background and Helen's, who'd been a teacher for children with physical challenges and our values, 
We never considered excluding any child from our program. Syl, who in addition to her own teaching career, elementary art, spent much time in our program, served on our board, and shared our values. Our diverse group of children included a child who came to school in a hospital bed, some who used crutches, wheelchairs, or braces, children with cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, ADHD, blindness, hearing impairments, selective mutism, dyslexia, and other kinds of neurodiversity. Some required speech or physical therapy as part of the program, and several who were emotionally or psychologically traumatized with or without a diagnosis. One memorable child, Michael, was born with only one partially formed arm and fingers coming out of his shoulder because of his mother's thalidomide use during pregnancy. And I know this listing isn't even nearly complete. My college students experienced as great a variety of differences as the preschoolers, and I learned much from working with sign language interpreters for the deaf, note-takers, personal care aides for students with physical challenges. I had students with Tourette's syndrome and students on the spectrum. My experiences of managing a classroom with such a wonderful variety of students helped improve my teaching skills and allowed me to model respect for the rest of the class. Over the years, Syl and I have heard from many former students about the way their lives, too, were enriched by sharing a classroom with others different from themselves. I've tried to be respectful about the words I've chosen to describe differences because words are important and we do need to be sensitive to the realities they create. But this is not just about being woke, about political correctness, or using correct words. Words like disabled were part of our vocabulary and we're adjusting to the term differently abled. Remembering to use people first language by saying children with Down syndrome or children on the spectrum is important. And the controversy over the UU standing on the side of love project about what the word standing might mean to some, as well as the meaning of pronouns to our friends in the trans community have been valuable in reminding all of us about the significance of language. Yes, society has made some changes, enacted laws to accommodate and include physical differences, cutbacks on sidewalks, reserved parking spaces, reducing architectural barriers. We're proud of our capital campaign, our elevator, and the interest that many in our congregation have shown in the accessibility and inclusion ministry. But attitudes and acceptance cannot be constructed or legislated. It isn't always easy to know how to respond to someone who stands too close to us or talks too loudly or who yells out at the wrong time. We can't always figure out what is the right time to offer help, or how to offer it in a helpful way, or when to just stand back and wait. We may not have the patience to work with children or adults whose learning style requires more repetition or more creativity than we have, but it is imperative that we try. We must recognize the feelings that come over us unbidden when someone looks physically different or, or acts in ways we don't expect and begin to examine our feelings and keep at it. 
Each day more and more is being discovered about the brain and its infinite variations. In the book, The Power of Neurodiversity, Dr. Thomas Armstrong states, there is no normal brain sitting in a vat somewhere to which all other brains must be compared. We are all different from one another. Neurodiversity is every bit as crucial for the human race as biodiversity is for life in general. Judy Picot, in her wonderful book, Mad Honey, written with trans writer Jennifer Finney Boylan, reminds us that difference like gender is a social construct. Archbishop Desmond Tutu has said, God created us to be different in order that we can realize our need of one another. And our own Marie Mori in her summer sermon said, diversity is an intentional part of all creation. We have heard the value of diversity over and over and over again. Believe it. I was reminded of something recently when I ran across the statement, anthropology makes the world safe for differences. An us and them world is never safe for the them. It wasn't safe for the indigenous people. It isn't safe to be different now. I am sorry for that reality, and we must change it. Mr. Wobbles would have been an experimental subject had Sill's mother not intervened. Safety is important, but to ensure safety, we need to see differences as even more than interesting, but as profound gifts to us all. Syl and I have supported friends and family through the realities of physical and mental health, illnesses and challenges, differences of many kinds. We have been blessed to see that grandson of ours with dyslexia become an engineer, that redheaded girl with the crutches share our community as loving and kind activist, know and love several people on the spectrum. Recently, we attended a party for a former student with the significant limitations of cerebral palsy as well as hearing loss. Bonnie just completed her own exceptional career in teaching. This brought to back to our mind Michael, the little boy with the limb difference, being awarded a graduate degree from Columbia as a special needs educator. And we were struck by their parallel to the indomitable energy of Mr. Wobbles. What explanation accounts for every transcendence of spirit? We did not begin the sermon with the theme of gratitude in mind, but as Syl and I worked on it, we became aware that it is about gratitude and the ways that our experiences with differences have touched, expanded, and given purpose to our own lives. We are grateful to have had so many opportunities to learn to be patient while someone completes a task or struggles, struggles to formulate a thought that sign language can communicate and is often more beautiful than the spoken word, that social skills are simply conventions and kindness and patience are more important than arbitrary social rules, that all kinds of bodies are wondrous and beautiful, that the heart contains a more powerful wisdom than intellect, that what we can do is more important than what we can't, because we have known all of them we have been changed for good. Amen.